Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and we shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of thy faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, St. Joseph, St. John the Beloved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, last week, uh, when I s- spoke on sloth, Father Cruz volunteered to come, and he said, I'll just, you know, you could just set up a chair up on the stage, and I'll, and I'll just, just be a prop, okay? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I uh, turned down that offer. Um, he, uh, one of your handouts is a reflection that Father Cruz, who's a resident here at... Uh, at St. John's and is studying canon law at Catholic U. Uh, this is a, a reflection he wrote years ago on the seven deadly sins in light of the parable of the prodigal son. So uh, when I found out that he had done that, uh, I said, well, why don't you print it out so that I can hand it out. And so it makes some good reflection as we enter into um, the last two weeks of Lent and uh, the most intense time of preparation for celebrating our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection. Gluttony and lust, the last two. Let me just make some preliminary remarks some, uh, before we get to uh, the meat of, the, uh, um, of tonight's topic. First, as St. Tom, Thomas observes, and by the way, whenever I say Thomas, somebody asked last, last time, whenever I say Thomas, it's always St. Thomas. With all due respect to the Apostle and, and the other Thomases in the, in, in the church's history, it's always Aquinas in this context, anyway. Um, He makes the observation that the more necessary a thing is, the more important that it be subject to reason. The more necessary a thing is, the the more important that it be subject to reason. Frivolous things don't need to be subject to reason quite as much, because they're frivolous. We can afford for them to be, well, silly and out of control. But things that are necessary, like maintaining one's uh, life by drinking and eating, maintaining the species by uh, procreating, uh, since these things are so necessary, it is all the more important that they be subject to reason. Uh, And I point that out um, in contrast to those who think that the body really has no, is of no account and they will just emphasize the spiritual dimension of things. Beware of those who say, who who just talk about, you know, being spiritual or a spiritual relationship. That works for the angels because they're pure spirit. It doesn't work for us because we have this awkward, clumsy thing called the body. Brother ass, as St. Francis called it. Um, The body is of extreme importance, and on Good Friday, when we uh, process to the sanctuary and we reverence uh, the cross, uh, with our body we kiss the representation of our Lord's body. And then on Easter, when we receive our Lord's body and blood, we should recall how important uh, the body is. It's the means uh, which our Lord used to redeem us, and it is the means by which every sacrament comes to us. Another thing to keep in mind in this regard, this is still just the first point, Um, In order for something to have meaning, 
it must have limits. To define something means literally to talk about its boundaries or its limits. To define something is to say it is this, it's contained by these boundaries and it's not that thing over there. In order for the body to have meaning, and we should want it to have meaning because it's part of who we are, in order for it to have meaning, there must be certain established limits to what we can do with the body. And that's where we get into the teachings of the church against gluttony and lust. And of course, everybody rebels against the church's teaching against lust. Nobody really gets angry about the church's teaching against gluttony for some reason. Maybe they haven't just heard about it. I don't know. <laughs> gluttony and lust, or rather, uh, food and drink, um, sexual union, these are essential for the survival of individuals and survival of the species. And because they are so necessary, it is all the more important that they be subject to reason. That's the first uh, preliminary remark. Second, the loneliness of vice. The loneliness of vice. We've already seen this in the other vices that we've discussed, but I think it might come out a little more clearly when we talk about these two. We are created for community. We are not created to be isolated individuals. We are created to be in union. God looked at Adam. I think it's one of the funniest lines in all of Scripture. Adam had all of creation before him, plenty of hunting and fishing and hiking. Uh, And God looked and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And I imagine Adam saying, what? This is fine. It's great. I've got all these things to do here. Now, God makes that observation not because he had made a mistake, but we are sort of introduced into God's own thought. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for any of us to be alone. We are created for community, and without community, well, we turn in on ourselves and we become distorted and vicious. All vice has this aspect of isolating us and making, putting us into loneliness. All sins separate. And that's why in Dante's description of hell, it's just isolated individuals who are banging into each other, and they hate each other, and they can't stand it because they're with each other. In purgatory, we see something different. We see groups of people striving for heaven together. And in heaven, in Dante's estimation, we see, of course, this perfect union uh, of of persons. As we'll see as we go on tonight, both these sins, I think, um, bring this truth out even more, especially lust, because uh, the division that vice brings is even more severe when um, the union should be most intimate. That act which should unite two persons most intimately, lust isolates them in the middle of it. Third point, just... Preliminary. Um, Well, it seems that lust would be more grave than gluttony. And as I said at the very beginning, we're going in order uh, as St. Gregory and St. Thomas uh, considered that these uh, were in order of gravity. And lust is the last one. Now, be careful who you say this to, okay? Uh, Because, you know... Don't say this to high school and college students. Well, it's really the least of the seven deadly sins, you know. No, you want them to think it's the worst, okay? Um, but it, 
in the traditional listing, it is the least. And it doesn't seem like it should be the least because in our culture it's the most prevalent. But um, because it seems that lust touches on a higher good than gluttony. Because lust touches on uh, the union of two persons and procreation. So this is one of those areas in which I scratch my head and say, well, uh, I, I want Gregory and Thomas to explain this to me when I get to heaven, uh, if I get to heaven. So, um, but perhaps we can understand it uh, in this manner. Um, eating is necessary for everyone, for every person. Sexual union is not necessary for everyone. It's necessary for the species, but it is not necessary that everyone uh, have that experience in their lives. But it is necessary that every person eat and drink. And so perhaps for that reason, we can see gluttony as a graver uh, vice than lust. Finally, by way of introduction, uh, I just want to alert you to the connection of these two. I'm glad I didn't split, split these two up. The, these, these two um, go hand in hand. In fact, Chaucer describes them as the two hands of the devil. Uh, reaching out to grab us. And so I will get into, uh, into that as we go along. So first, as regards gluttony. Uh, St. Paul has this great line from Philippians. For many of whom I have often told you, now tell you, even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Those are pretty harsh words for people whose God is uh, their belly. But uh, he's describe, describing those who are dominated by gluttony. Uh, their God is the belly. And St. Gregory alerts us to the uh, importance of this. Unless we first tame the enemy dwelling within us, namely our gluttonous appetite, we have not even stood up to engage in the spiritual combat. That's, that's pretty sobering. We haven't even stood up. We haven't even started the, the spiritual combat unless we have taken the, uh, the taming of our gluttony seriously. So this comes, the, the word itself comes from the Latin uh, glutire, which means to devour or to gulp down. And it is certainly prevalent in our society. Um, Child obesity, you read the statistics on that. I mean, just uh, amazing, you know, that, that uh, children who, who should be running around and should be, you know, thin as a rail because they're so active and everything, uh, now, we, now we're, we're faced with child obesity. The restaurants we go to and the absurd uh, portions that we are served. Um, and so, I mean, if you're wise, you, you, you don't finish it. You, you, you buy it, you eat half, and then you take the other one for, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner the next day, okay? Um, All-night diners, all-you-can-eat buffets. Are these things really necessary? All-you-can-eat buffet. To say, come on and eat as much as you can. Uh, there was an ad from McDonald's a couple summers ago saying, now most McDonald's are open 24 hours. Thank God, because, I mean, three in the morning when you just have to, you know, go to McDonald's. So there are all these indications in our society. We, we've never seen this before. It's, it's, there's never been a time where we have to have all-night diners, have to have McDonald's open all night. We have to have an, uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet. And so 
Fairley, um, uh, Henry Fairley in his book, uh, The Seven Deadly Sins Today, he observes, Gluttony is a grievous sin, according to theology, if it induces us to find all our contentment in the gratifying of our appetites. But this is today almost all that our society offers us, the only strenuous act strenuousness of activity to which we are excited. I mean, this is what is in advertising. This is what is always enticing us to, to satisfy your appetite, to glut yourself on whatever may please you. And you can see already how this leads to lust. Now, as I've said in the past, every one of the vices is the distortion of a good. And the good here, as I've already mentioned, is something that's very basic food, and drink. Extraordinary to consider that even as we glut ourselves in our society, for those who are nearing the end of life or are, have, are struggling with a terminal illness, the opposite is done. We recognize that food and drink are necessary for everyone, but then we will refuse to give hydration and nutrition, which is fancy for uh, water and food. We refuse to give these things to those who are suffering. We deny them those things. This happens very often. The Terry Shiavo case is just the most famous, but this sort of thing happens all the time. We are denying them what's necessary for life, not, uh, not to heal them, but just, just to take care of them. So that is the good that is being distorted here, the good of food and drink. And also, there's a certain pleasure attached to that. Notice that God attaches pleasure to those things that are necessary. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with taking a reasonable pleasure in food and drink. Our, I mean, we're Roman Catholics, after all. I mean, Rome. I mean, it's Italian food, okay? So, so there's nothing wrong with that. But often what gluttony produces is a numbness to the goodness of food. And so the glutton very often really doesn't care about the taste. He's just shoving food in his mouth. He's just wolfing things down. And then there's the solitariness of gluttony. Uh, Henry Fairley says, gluttony makes us solitary. We place ourselves apart even at the table of sharing. It should be that having a meal with someone expresses a certain communion with that person and fosters it. But with the vice of gluttony, the opposite happens. You're not really sharing anything. Just two vehicles or more of consuming food sitting there, and there's no genuine union. And it's just a matter of, of, of getting the food uh, eaten, and that's it. And the even greater problem, of course, is, well, to my way of thinking, the decline of the family dinner. That the family dinner used to be a place not where just children are fed, because anyone can do that. McDonald's can do that. But where children are instructed, are loved, are, are, are valued, are, are brought out of themselves, learn how to share, learn how to reveal themselves. All of these things that go into a life of living in community. And when the family dinner is gone, we just become people who, who rush around and devour food simply because we need to be fed no better than the animals. Animals don't have dinner parties, okay? Uh, we, we do. The glutton does not. The glutton goes to a dinner party but doesn't really connect with anyone. A great 
display of the solitariness of gluttony is um, in the um, third Lord of the Rings movie. I think it's in the fourth or fifth hour of it. Um, uh, it's, it's not faithful to the book, but it's a great scene. The, the ruler of the city, Denethor, is uh, feasting. His, his army is on the battlefield. His son is on the battlefield. And Denethor is there at the table, and in the movie, they really make a, uh, they, they do it very well. He's like eating grapes, and the grape is, is spurting out his juice all over the place. It's dripping down his chin. He's a, he's a complete glutton, and he's been numbed to those around him. People are sacrificing their lives for him. He's numb to it. And so there's also an aspect of ingratitude. Uh, a glutton, if he says grace, says it quickly. Now, it is an inordinate desire for the pleasures of food. Not for the food itself, but for the pleasure that it brings. Because sometimes we really are going to desire food, uh, either when we're starving or when we're fasting. Okay, so a, a desire for food is in itself not wrong, but gluttony is that inordinate desire for the pleasures uh, that food brings, the pleasures of the palate. Uh, and we have in our culture comfort food, the term comfort food. Now think about that. Why am I eating? I'm just eating to be comforted. I'm not eating because I need it. I'm not eating necessarily because I enjoy it. I just, I'm just getting something in my belly and it's making me feel good. Uh, another sort of uh, distortion of what should be. St. Thomas says that the gravity of gluttony comes not so much from the vice itself, but from the other sins that it occasions. He says, it is not the direct cause, but the accidental cause, as it were, the occasion of other vices. And so a gluttony of drink, of alcohol, deprives us of reason and is occasion for many other vices. A gluttony in general is an occasion very often for lust. There's a great scene in Macbeth, Act 2, Scene 3. The porter and Macduff. Macduff asks the porter, what three things... Uh, the porter says, drink, sir, is a great provoker of three things. And he says, what three things does drink especially provoke? Is Mary, sir, nose painting, which is kind of the red nose, right, that we associate with drinking too much, sleep, not the good kind of sleep, but passing out, <laughs> and the third thing it provokes, he says, urine. <laughs> and then he actually goes on and he... And and he says, and he names lechery, or lust. He adds that on. That's not one of the original three that he mentions, but he says that is one that it provokes. And so gluttony is occasion for, uh, for other sins. As I said, Chaucer describes gluttony and lust as two hands of the devil reaching out to grab us, and doing a pretty good job of it. Um, and he describes what St. Thomas calls the species of gluttony, or the various forms of gluttony, as the five fingers of the devil's hand by which he draws men to sin. Um, what are the five ways that, we, that our desire for food or use of food becomes inordinate? 
And St. Thomas takes this from Pope St. Gregory, and Chaucer takes it uh, as well from the tradition. Hastily, sumptuously, too much, greedily, daintily. Hastily. Um, eating before one should. I remember standing at the dinner table, like, you know, like snitching, and that's what we call it, snitching, you know, eating before grace was said. And we'd get hand slapped on occasion like that, or we'd, we, we'd rat each other out, you know. Um, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, he's taken, you know, we haven't said grace yet. Um, eating hastily. The glutton can't wait. He has to eat now. And he's not going to wait for others to be served. Uh, it's just good etiquette and also good virtue to wait for everybody to be served before you eat. Um, Oscar Wilde's great um, adage, uh, manners before morals. Uh, in other words, if we, we cultivate good manners, we're more likely to, to have good morals. Um, Yes, Oscar Wilde may have, he may have understood the first part better than the second, but, but uh, it's true nonetheless. Hastily is first. And it's rudeness to others, isn't it? And this is, again, the solitariness of vice. It makes a person insensitive to the others around him. Second, sumptuously, costly food. Eating food that, you know, you can't afford. Okay, if, if, if you're, if you're, Going out to restaurants and putting on a credit card uh, that, you know, because you can't afford it, okay, <laughs> that counts as gluttony. Um, eating too sumptuously, uh, above your means. Third, eating too much. This is the most obvious one, isn't it? But it's only one of five. <laughs> eating too much, an excessive quantity, for example, when it compromises one's health. Um, like the Romans, the ancient Romans who used to, you know, they, they had the vomitorium. You know, where, where they would gorge, they, they, would, they would feast and they would go make themselves throw up so they could eat more. Okay, so, um, I mean, how many in our culture are eating to the detriment of their own health? So much so that now the government has to step in and say certain kinds of food can't be served. You know, no trans fatty acids or things like that, you know. Well, when we get to a point where the government has to step in for our own health, then we know we're really, really in bad shape. It's another sign that with an increase of vice comes a decrease of freedom. Fourth, greedily, eating like a pig. Face in the plate, okay, not, you know, barely taking a breath. Uh, I'm sorry, but high school boys are, you know, infamous for like, they're just going to, you know, breathe in food and it's gone. That's it. Um, and again, there's a lack of consideration for others at table. There's typically a lack of manners, chewing with your mouth open, things like that, reaching across the table to grab something. There's a lack of consideration for others. Fifth, and if you've read the screw tape letters, you know this one. Daintily, eating too nicely, too fussy an eater, too picky and the kind of person who inconveniences everyone else because things are not just right. So C.S. Lewis uses the example, you know, oh, the tea is not hot enough. Can you just, just a little hotter? And not too much hotter, mind you, but just, just, just a little bit hotter, you know. And, and being so picky and so fussy about things, giving an excessive attention to, uh, to the food or to the drink, and uh, a lack of attention, again, to those who are at table, or 
to those you inconvenience by insisting on things being just right. You know, it's the incapacity to say, well, you know, this is fine. You know, this will do. It's not as great as it could be, but it's, it's fine. Uh, I was recently down in the Dominican Republic visiting my very good friend, Father Chris Murphy, uh, who's a, a son of this parish, and he's, on, he's been in, doing missionary work down there for the past uh, now five years. And I, against my better judgment, I went up into the mountains with him to these little, little chapels that he serves, and each one serves maybe five or six huts. And, um, and at one, we stayed overnight at one, and, um, and, the, and the local people uh, served us dinner. This is way up in the mountains. There, there's no running water up there. Uh, there. There's no electricity. There's no sanitation. There's no nothing. And they served us beans and rice, which I thought was pretty safe, and then noticed there's something else in there. Okay. I said, what is it? Well, it's meat. Okay. What kind of meat? Pork. Oh, well, at least it's not something that can poison you easily. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I turned to Father Murphy, and he says, listen, they boil everything to death, so, you know, you're safe. Uh, we soon realized it was not just pork, it was, it was pork intestines, okay? So, but that's not the place to say, uh, you know, I'm, you know can, can you fix me something else, okay? Okay. And, and the, the, the lessons of the, of the missionaries, you know, I mean, I was just there one night. Um, but uh, just being able to, you know, be gracious in that manner. Hastily, sumptuously, too much, greedily, and daintily. Those are the five fingers of the hands of gluttony that reach out to try to grab us. So what is the opposing virtue? Abstinence. So during Lent, refrain from meat every Friday. Now I'm going to ruin the rest of the year for many of you. The church law is that during Lent, we must abstain from meat every Friday. In the United States, the church law is, and it binds us, uh, every Friday, we are to abstain from eating meat. However, for those Fridays outside of Lent, we are permitted to substitute some other mortification if we should choose to eat meat. Now, how many people know that one? No, mo- <laughs> okay. I, that was nice. I just It's rhetorical. <laughs> And more than I thought, by the way. <laughs> First school mass I ever preached as a, as, a, as a priest, I asked a rhetorical question at the beginning of my homily. I said, what is a saint? And all the hands went up. <laughs> what is the reason for this, for this rule of abstinence? First of all, some fringe benefits of that, when it was crystal clear in every Catholic's mind, why Red Lobster still has specials on Fridays. When it was crystal clear in every Catholic's mind, there's a certain solidarity. Hey, you're Catholic too? Yeah, you stuck with the you know, fish sticks again? Yeah, <laughs> so am I. Um, so there's a certain, you identified yourself. The reason for this is to introduce us into the habit of abstaining from food and drink at certain times. And it's instituted on Fridays because that's the day our Lord died, and that's a day that we should make some sacrifice. So, Abstinence. John Harden calls it the moral virtue that inclines a person to the moderate use of food or drink as dictated by right reason or by faith for his own moral and spiritual welfare. Um, and sometimes it, you know, it will mean giving, um, denying ourselves certain things that are legitimate and that are good. There's nothing wrong with them. 
but we give them up in order to train our will to the moderate and reasonable use of food and drink. And this is something that, unfortunately, has really been lost. Uh, that, that we don't recognize this, not just as an obligation, but as a good. So, um, how does Dante address this? Uh, Canto 22 is where um, Dante and Virgil enter into the, uh, the ring of the gluttons, um, which would, you know, in another context, sound fun. This is the ring of gluttons. Oh, going to be fun. No. <laughs> he, says, he describes it this, this way. A tree in the middle of our way suddenly cut the pleasant discourse short with apples sweet to smell and good to eat. Apples. And as a fir tree tapers to its top from limb to limb, so that tree tapered too, but down, to keep a man from climbing up. So I su- to keep a man from climbing up, so I suppose. And down the mountain wall, all of Purgatory is this big mountain, so there's the, the wall there and this, this inverted fir tree, if you will, um, is right in front of them. And down the mountain wall spilled a clear liquor from the towering rock, sprinkling through all the branches in its fall. The poets approached the tree, and from among its leafy limbs there came a voice that cried, You shall be sparing of this precious food. Then said... Mary thought more of what would make the wedding feast complete and honorable than of her mouth, which now pleads for your sake. Out in the desert, John the Baptist ate locusts and honey for his supper, who was therefore glorified and made as great as the evangelist declares to you. So here's, the, here's this, this, this peculiar sort of punishment to purge the souls dominated by gluttony. I'll explain it a little more as we encounter those souls. But remember, in every ring of, of purgatory, Our Lady is held forth as an example of the virtue that purges the vice. And it's a wonderful description of the wedding feast at Cana. Mary thought more of what would make the wedding feast complete and honorable than of her mouth, which now pleads for your sake. She's now pleading for you with, with her mouth. But at the wedding feast of Cana, when she asked her son to change water into wine, she wasn't just saying, you know, I'd really like a glass of wine. Okay, that is not what Our Lady was doing. But she was saying there is something missing here. There is something human, honorable, and good about a feast and, and about wine. And so we should have one. Of course, there's much more profound theological meaning there. But just on a you know, natural level, uh, Our Lady was pleading for something honorable and good. And so there they are at the tree, and the souls come up to them. When, listen... There the sound of song and tears for someone saying, O Lord, open my lips, such as to summon grief and joy at once. So the souls who are dominated by, by, um, by gluttony are singing, Lord, open my lips, which is a quote from the Psalms. Those of you who do the Liturgy of the Hours, you know that this is the first, uh, the first phrase that you use at the beginning. Lord, open my lips so that I can declare your praise. And that's what these souls have to, have to learn how to say. Why? Because they've opened their lips just to eat and drink. And now they have to learn how to open their lips to pray. And then um, he describes them. They are emaciated. 
these, these souls. They, they appear to him as just emaciated figures. And their, their skin is just hanging on their bones. And their faces, of course, since their skin is hanging on their bones, their faces appear as just two round holes, okay, because they're so thin. And then what appears to be an M because of, of the, the, uh, the, the bone of the, of the skull circling the eyes. So it seems to be these two O's with an M uh, over them. In Italian, the word for man is uomo. And the O-M-O that Dante sees in these faces, he sees it as they are being, finally, being made into real men, being made truly human by being purged from their sin. It's a very interesting take he has there, that their gluttony, I mean, how do we describe a glutton? He's a pig. He's less than human. And so these gluttons are being made into real men, into real persons. And then they describe their punishment. And it's a wonderful description that applies to all of the punishments in purgatory. And they say, From the eternal providence divine, a power descends into the tree and rain back there, the the tree that was upside down and the liquor coming from the mountainside. And this one soul says, A power that makes me lean and fine. (laughs) It thins me out. Uh, Because they, they hunger and thirst for this, but they can't have it because the tree is structured in such a way that they can't get at it. And so after a lifetime of glutting themselves, of eating and drinking whenever they wanted, now they're learning how to go without, how to have it within reach, to smell it. It's right there, but they can't get it. They can't have it. The odor of the fruit and of the spray, splashing its fragrant droplets in the green, kindle desire in us to eat and drink. And many a time along this turning away, we find the freshening of our punishment, our punishment, our solace, I should say. So they go around this ring, and they come upon this tree, and the the sweet-smelling apples and the liquor coming from the mountainside, and it excites in them that hunger and thirst all over again, and then it's denied as they go around the ring. And so they keep coming back to it and are purged gradually. And notice how this one soul describes purgatory, this punishment of purgatory. He says, he says, our punishment, and then he kind of backtracks. He goes, our punishment, our solace, I should say, that in purgatory, the punishments aren't the same as they are in hell. There is a certain solace in the, pur- in the punishment of purgatory because it frees the soul for heaven. So that's what they encounter in the ring of gluttony. Now the ring of lust. And this is the highest one on the mountain. First, two quotes to to bring out how these two vices are connected. Pope St. Gregory, when the belly is distended by gluttony, the virtues of the soul are destroyed by lust. And Chaucer, after gluttony comes lechery or lust, for these two sins are so akin that they often... For, that often they will not be separated. Okay. Um, St. Thomas says very simply, Now lust consists essentially in exceeding the order and mode of reason in the matter of venereal acts. Very technical, very sterile sort of definition. Father Hardin, An inordinate desire for or enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Notice, the good that is being distorted is sexual pleasure. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. 
but uh, as he says, an inordinate desire or an inordinate enjoyment of it uh, that goes against reason. That's when it becomes a vice. The desires or acts are inordinate when they do not conform to the divinely ordained purpose of sexual pleasure, which is to foster the mutual love of husband and wife and, according to the dispositions of providence, to procreate and educate their children. Uh, the, the two purposes for, uh, of human sexuality, procreation uh, and union, uh, babies and bonding. Uh, and an act against either of those, a deliberate act to eliminate either of those, is an act of unchastity and is uh, giving in to the vice of lust. And again, there is an isolation at work here. Uh, Henry Fairley says, lust is not interested in its partners. Lust is not interested in its partners. All that it is interested in is pleasure. The person does not matter. Lust is not interested in its partners. So men, increasingly in our culture, are isolated by pornography. Uh, they, they retreat into themselves. Uh, they are no longer interested in their partners, uh, their spouses if they're married. They're not interested really in the person of the image that they see. Uh, they're just interested in the pleasure. It's interesting to consider the, difference, the different manners in which this vice appears in men and in women. Uh, for men, it probably is more just physical. For women, there's probably more of an emotional component to it. I was giving a, um, uh, presentations at a conference for engaged couples yesterday, and there are two, other, uh, two, two married couples presenting with me. And I uh, gave a very strong talk against pornography, which is one of the greatest scourges in our culture right now. Any priest uh, will tell you that. Any counselor will tell you that. Um, but it was interesting speaking with one of the wives, because she said that you know, there is really kind of a, a, a female version of pornography. And she said, take, take the form, for example, of, of women um, getting in touch with old boyfriends on Facebook saying, oh, so nice to be back in touch with him again, you know, and it was catching up with him again. And so it was not sort of a lust in a, in a physical way, but sort of an emotional attachment that is there. Now, maybe strictly speaking, this is not the sin of lust, but very often it leads to the same thing. There's the old, um, the old line that uh, men use love to get sex, women use sex to get love. Uh, and un unfortunately, you know, it's men and women sort of attacking one, one another with their mutual weaknesses. Another, some other things to keep in mind about the prevalence of this in our culture. Um, first of all, the myth of private morality. It doesn't matter what, it, what you know, a man and woman or a man and a man do in the privacy of their ho own home. Well, yes, it does. Because this is an act. This is a faculty of the human person that is ordered to a greater community. And so there's this myth of private morality is, is, is just nonsense. There's nobody who doesn't come from the union of two persons. And so how can we say it has nothing to do with the broader culture? C.S. <coughs> Lewis observes that all of this talk about sex has had the effect of making it joyless. No fun. Uh, even Naomi Wolf, I don't quote her very often, um, <laughs> Naomi Wolf has a wonderful article on this saying how, 
how sexual uh, liberation has in fact uh, just robbed sex of any meaning. It goes back to what I said earlier. In order for something to have meaning, to have significance, it needs to have certain boundaries. And once we say there are no boundaries to this, we can, you know, we can do whatever we want. No boundaries, no meaning. And so what's the purpose of it anymore? And why should there be any joy in it whatsoever? And C.S. Lewis talks about how there's just this grave seriousness about sex uh, that fails to see the joy. And this joy can be seen only by those who recognize the boundaries. Only by those who recognize the boundaries. Um, he says, once you uh, eliminate joy from the marriage bed, you let in a demon. Because then it becomes some, something gravely serious and not something that is actually enjoyed by two persons. And this intersects with other vices. Um, for example, with envy. Uh, somebody recommended that I buy, and I went ahead and bought it, the... Um, the white book from Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous have the blue book, um, and it's kind of stories of people who've recovered from alcoholism, uh, or are recovering, rather. And uh, Sexaholics Anonymous has a similar thing. It's called the white book, white for purity. And I, I just read, like, the first paragraph. And it's, it's, it was amazing how it was phrased. Uh, they were just saying where they were and how they came to know they had to go to these meetings. It said, we desired to lust and to be lusted after. We desire to lust and to be lusted after. There's a certain vanity in that, isn't there? Not just desiring to lust, but to have someone lust after you. This is why in advertising, first of all, women are used. You know, it's not usually a man in next to nothing that is used to advertise. It's a woman in next to nothing. Why is that? Well, because if you do that, you, you, have, you have the attention of all, of all the men but correct me if I'm wrong, ladies, you have the attention of all the women as well. Because all the women are, are saying, okay, what, what should I look like? What is the competition? And so advertisers know this and say, well, put a woman up there. We get everybody, two birds with one stone. Um, and they're always looking out on these advertisers um, and appealing to a man's vanity. Hi there, I'm looking at you. A uh, man said, oh, looking at me. Uh, there is a vanity that is involved there. And this is the allure uh, of pornography, which is always directed at men. Uh, it is um, appealing to their vanity. <laughs> the stupid vanity of thinking, this, this woman's interested in me. Okay? No, th this woman doesn't exist, actually. <laughs> so it intersects with vanity. It also intersects with a little uh, envy. Uh, men are competitive. And, uh, and so there's a certain, you know, a certain expectation is introduced. College, high school, now middle school. A certain expectation. And you hear somebody has achieved a really perverted goal. And when that uh, intersects with envy, it leads to greater lust. And it intersects with sloth. I mentioned this, uh, I think, last week. Um, pornography really is, is, uh, is used uh, very often uh, because those who fall into it, have, they're bored. We're the first, first culture in the history of the world that's really bored. I mean, as a culture, there have always been the, the, the rich who are bored. Uh, but as a culture, you know, I mean, kids, 
who just say, I'm bored. Kids saying, I'm bored. Children saying, I'm bored. And then grown men who should have responsibilities out of boredom seeking some way to please themselves. Now, what it's the effect of lust is uh, that the lower appetite uh, rebels against the higher faculties. Uh, and so reason is compromised. Uh, St. Thomas says, venereal pleasures above all debauch a man's mind. Now, that's not a condemnation of, of sexual pleasure, but it's, it's simply a recognition of the danger of it. What is one of the most common as far as we know from movies and, unfortunately, from real life, one of the most common things that spies use to compromise on, you know, someone else is sex. Because it, it compromises reason. Um, and Chaucer says this is the other hand of the devil, uh, with five fingers to catch people into his villainy. What are these five fingers? Five sort of steps. First, Foolish gazing, for the covetousness of the eyes follows the covetousness of the heart. And I would say the reverse is true, too. Foolish gazing. Every advertiser knows this. He knows the way we work. We get an image before us. We take it into our mind. And if we don't get rid of that image, if we don't repent of it, it trickles down to our heart and becomes a desire. And if we don't repent of that desire, if we don't somehow try to get rid of it, it becomes an action. We act on that desire. And if we don't repent of that action or reject it somehow, that action becomes a habit. And if we don't try to break that habit, that habit becomes an addiction. Every advertiser understands this. They put their product, their logo, in front of you so that it will be a thought and then a desire and then an action, and then a habit, and maybe sometimes an addiction. They want your money. They want brand loyalty. Well, this is exactly how it works as regards lust. First is the foolish gazing, looking at things that one ought not look at, um, or looking at, th- at someone in a manner that we should not look at that person. Even that person may be modestly dressed, Maybe nothing wrong with the person that we're looking at, but looking in the wrong way. How much of uh, internet use and TV and, and window shopping <laughs> is really sort of just a lust of the eyes, just allowing our eyes to be led to different things. We just, we've got the term in our culture, eye candy. And now you understand why the, our, our culture is a sitting duck for this first finger of the hand of the devil, foolish gazing. Second, villainous touching in a wicked manner. Uh, touching uh, in, manner, in a manner that uh, people should not touch each other. Third, foul words uh, that before long burn the heart. Speaking words that should not be spoken. Uh, Kissing is the fourth, and then fifth is the adultery or the lechery itself. Important, the way it begins with the foolish gazing. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And so we have to watch what we watch. 
The opposing virtue of chast is chastity. And um, uh, I recommend to you the section in the Catechism on the Ninth Commandment. Very, very wonderful, beautiful. I mean, it's catechetics, but it's also just beautiful about the importance of purity. Uh, chastity is simply the proper uh, use of the sexual faculty. I like to say to high schoolers, because it gets their attention, chastity is the ability to say yes. When I say that, I've got the attention of every high school boy. You know? um, but chastity is the ability to say yes to the right person, at the right time, for the right reasons, in the right manner. And it involves a lot of no's along the way. Uh, John Paul II described those no's as a no at the service of a greater yes. So chastity is the yes. And what people are increasingly finding in our culture is that they are so enslaved by lust that they cannot say yes to their own spouses. They cannot give themselves freely, generously, purely to their own spouses because they are bound uh, within themselves. Or worse, bound to someone else. And the beatitude that liberates this, uh, liberates souls from this, blessed are the pure of heart. So here's the final ring of purgatory. And uh, Canto 25 of the Divine Comedy. And Dante describes it this way. We'd come now to the final twist of pain. The final ring of punishment. And turning to our right attentively, we looked upon another source of care. For here the walls shot out a blast of flame, but the ring sent a breeze from down below, driving it back and sheltering a slim pathway along the unprotected edge for walking one by one. So imagine this very, very narrow edge, and there's fire coming out of the wall, and then a cool breeze coming up that kind of sends the fire back, creating just this little, little narrow way through which you can walk. You're not getting burned by the fire, but you're not falling off the ledge. Now, the reason for the fire should be clear. Um, this side I feared the fire, that side the sheer fall from the ledge. All round this ring, my guide began to say, you'd better keep a tight rein on the eyes. Notice how Dante describes this. It's brilliant. He says, I mean, they're in the, in the, in the ring of, uh, that's purifying them from lust, so what do they have to do? They have to be very attentive, keep a watch on their eyes, make sure they don't take their eyes off their path. Keep a tight rein on the eyes. One small misstep and you'll have gone astray. That is a great summary of lust. Keep a tight rein on the eyes or else. One small misstep and you'll have gone astray. I beheld spirits walking through the flame. So he sees these souls, and they're walking in the flames. So portioning out my glances here and there, great line, portioning out my glances here and there, I looked at them and watched the way I came. So he's, he's taking a look at these, these, these souls, but he's kind of keeping a watch of where he's walking, too. His eyes are disciplined. Near to the last verse of that canticle, they cried aloud, but I have not known man. There's Our Lady's phrase from the Gospel of Luke. I have not known man. An expression of her chastity, of her virginity. And so she is the um, greatest example of this. Then they resumed, but with, uh, with voices low and still. 
Returning to their singing, they would cry of wives and husbands who were chaste and lived as virtue's laws and marriage both demand. And in this manner, I believe they stood the whole time they were searing in the fire. For only by the suffering and this food can the last wound of all be sown and healed. These souls are standing in the fire. They want to be purified of their lust. They burned with lust in the world, and now they are, you know, it's, I guess, kind of a supernatural hair of the dog. Uh, you know, since they burned with lust in this world, they, are, they burn uh, in purgatory to be purged of that. And they greet each other. There is communion among them. Uh, and so the next canto, uh, Dante observes, And from each side I saw the shades make haste to greet the others with a kiss, each one contented with the brief festivities. <laughs> and so they greet one another with a chaste kiss. What a wonderful thing that they're being purged of their lust by learning how to kiss someone in a chaste manner. And one of them says to Dante, or rather Dante himself says to one of the, one of the souls, I climb that I may no longer be blind. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. I climb so that I may no longer be blind. And at the end of this, Dante passes through the flames. In Canto uh, 27, Dante himself passes through the flames, and it's very important how it happens. He goes to the flames, and he has to pass through them to get out of purgatory into heaven. Um, And Virgil says to him, come on. Let's go through it. Now, Virgil, mind you, is a soul, okay? And he just goes right through the, through the flames. Dante is not. Um, and and uh, so Virgil bids him to come through. And Dante says, I joined my hands and stretched them to the flames, gazing, seeing too sharply in my mind bodies I'd seen burning at the stake. Remember, he lived in Florence, <laughs> okay? He saw people burned at the stake. And now he's seeing this fire in front of him. He's going, I'm not really sure I want to pass through that. <laughs> My worthy guides then turned around to me, and Virgil said, My son, there may indeed be torment here, but death can never be. And then Virgil goes on and explains to him. Virgil gives kind of like a a brief summary of all that they've been through. Their whole journey into hell, their whole journey up the mountain of of purgatory, and recounting all of these difficult situations they'd been in, and Virgil had gotten them through all of them. Um. And he says, stand in this fire's belly a thousand years. You must believe it for a certainty. You wouldn't be balder by a single hair. If you think what I tell you is a lie, come closer. Test it for yourself. Come here. Put your hands to your tunic's helm and try. He's trying to reason with him. Dante's not having any of it. Yet I stood firm against my conscience. (laughs) He knows he has to go through, but he doesn't want to. So what does Virgil do? He appeals to a chaste love. Because the entire journey of Dante, I'm not really sure what Dante's wife thought about this when she read the Divine Comedy, but the entire journey of Dante is inspired by his love of Beatrice, Beatrice. And he has such a love for it, and it's a chaste love. He says, so Virgil, he's reasoned with him, and he goes, well, that's not working. And he says, son, look now, what's keeping you from Beatrice is this wall, this wall of fire. If you want to see Beatrice, you've got to pass through this. Um, I turned. My stiffness softened at the name that ever rises fresh within my mind. At that, he shook his head at me and smiled. (laughs) He knew he'd got him. 
Now, really, do, do we want to stay back there as when a promised apple wins a child? Into the flames he went ahead of me. Um, the, blaze, the blazes there inside did so per- surpass all measure that to feel the cool again, I would have flung myself into boiling glass. But my sweet father, Virgil, spoke of Beatrice with every step he took to comfort me. I think I can already see her eyes. He's duping him. You know, Virgil's not, or Beatrice isn't there, but he's saying, come, come on, come on, Dante. I think, I think she's just right here. I think I just about see her eyes. And, uh, you know, Dante, who's, who's lovesick, you know, he's, he just goes, okay. He goes right through the flames. And we were guided by a singing voice past, from past the flames and turning toward the sound, we came out where you climb to reach the peak. And so they arise out of purgatory. And the, the, uh, the beatitude is, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. And I've given you a couple of catechism quotes on, on purity. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Um, so, having gone through all of those, I'm going to let Dante again have the last word. Um, he can do it better than I. Um, all of this is a matter of slavery and freedom. Uh, we Americans have a bad habit of thinking that um, the opposite, that, uh, of thinking that the greatest threat to freedom is outside of us, like George III. Okay, um, by all counts, he, you know, he, he, I guess he was he was pretty overbearing. Um, but the greatest threats to our freedom are interior, our vices. True freedom is not found in you know how much money we can spend, how many restaurants we have to choose from, um, how many channels we have on our TV. None of that accounts for true freedom. True freedom is not found in the ability to do whatever we want. I went over this with the eighth graders in, in our religious ed the other day. And, um, and I, and it's the standard response. What does freedom mean? And most Americans will say, freedom means the ability to do whatever you want. So I said, well, okay, so if I have the freedom to cut off my hand, you know, is that freedom? And I cut off my hand because I want to. And one of the kids said, well, you're free from your hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, okay, well, that is a freedom used to damage oneself. And that is not freedom, but slavery. Freedom to do whatever we want and not having any ability to control our desires is not freedom at all, but is slavery, slavery to vice. Vice and slaves, virtue frees us. And so as, um, as Dante is freed, from purgatory. He realizes this as he is purged. At the beginning, I didn't tell you this, but at the beginning of purgatory, um, an angel wrote on his forehead the, the letter P seven times for the, the Italian word for sin. And at the end of each ring, one of the P's was, was erased. And so now he, his face is clean again. He has saved face. And uh, he's free as he, as he leaves purgatory. And his will is free. His will is free, truly free. And he says, Will above will now surged in such delight to climb the top that with each step I took, I felt my feathers growing for the flight. His will is so free that he, he, he feels this levity in living the virtuous life. That's what virtue is. It is being free from the law, not in the sense that we disregard it, but in the sense that we don't need it. Because all of our decisions are true and just and beautiful. 
because that would so would virtue embodies. Father Ron Gillis made this point a couple of weeks ago to a gathering of priests, and he said that Saint Jose Maria, um, that he um, was spontaneous in his virtue, and he would just kind of get up and do these things, and he said that he, he really didn't need any law because he was just so full of virtue. You know, these spontaneous decisions of his were always good. Father Ron quickly added, I couldn't live like that. Okay. <laughs> and the rest of us were nodding, yeah, neither could we. <laughs> and then Virgil says, I've led you here by strength of mind and art. Take your own pleasure for your leader now. Take your own pleasure for your leader now. Imagine being able, to, being able to, to, to hear that, that whatever you want to do is good. That can be said of the virtuous person, of the saint, that the will is so perfected that what that person desires is itself good. St. Augustine says, love and do what you want. Sounds just really dangerous, right? To, uh, but if your love is perfect, then your will will be purified and what you want will be in accord with God's will. And Virgil ends, uh, Virgil is disappearing now. He can't go to heaven. Um, and he says, no longer wait for what I do or say. Your judgment now is free and whole and true. To fail to follow its will would be to stray. Your judgment has been so purified that to fail to follow it would be to strain to sin. And then the last line of this canto, 27. Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you. That is what the virtue, virtuous life looks like. The life free of vice is being Lord of yourself. You're in self-possession. And, and he says, Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you. There's a dignity and ability to rule over oneself because the person has been subject uh, to the freedom uh, that God alone can, can bring. So I'll close there. Thank you for your attention. Over these past four weeks, we'll have... Two minutes? Okay. Actually, I'm, uh, first, I just want to return um, a phrase that is not used very often and needs to be used is custody of the eyes. Okay? Um, that uh, Chaucer says that's the first, um, the first finger of the devil's hand that gets us with lust. Um, is, is what, foolish gazing or something? And uh, so custody of the eyes, you know, uh, making sure that your eyes are still your own and they don't, haven't been given to someone or something else. Okay, so questions. Okay, the, 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 the question is, is regarding the, well, really the epidemic of divorce and remarriage. And um, uh, is, is that a matter of lust? It's a good question. I think a lot um, <laughs> that uh, appears to be lust um, is not necessarily lust, but um, really a, a desire. I mean, as I said, it could be vanity. Um, uh, you know, we begin that at a very young age in our culture by having kids begin dating. You know, so you date for a couple months and you break up and you start dating somebody else for maybe, maybe longer, maybe a couple years, and then you break up and then you date somebody else and you keep doing this and it's just training for divorce and remarriage. That's, that's all it is. It's, it's getting into a relationship and then breaking it off and then getting into another one and breaking it off. Um, it's interesting to, to speculate exactly what that is. I mean, I think there's an emotional deficiency there that, that prevents somebody from attaching, from really giving, giving themselves 
and, and uh, our, our culture really doesn't allow that. Uh, it exacerbates this tendency we have when there comes a point in, in every relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage, where it gets difficult. And if you're not willing to tough it out, then it's over. And in our culture, which is a disposable culture, we're not willing to tough things out, so it's over. But um, uh, it's also a distortion of friendship, I think. Um, I think, uh, you know, I certainly knew in high school and college, those who never had friends but were always dating someone, always had to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. And what that meant is they never had a capacity to have a good friendship, a good relationship without a sexual component to it. And I think that's what, and now we have grown adults, you know, acting like uh, high schoolers in that regard. Okay, the question is about um, uh, the, the Holy Father's recent remarks regarding the use of uh, condoms to combat uh, the spread of AIDS in Africa. Just first, by the way, there was a piece in the Post today, the Post, uh, saying the Pope might be right. Of course, it was might. Uh, all right. But um, that, um, that there's no evidence that the use of condoms has, has really been effective in halting the spread of AIDS in, in Africa. Uh, this is something that is very hard for our culture to understand because um, we don't think according to principles, to first principles. We, um, this is an American strength and it is a, a glaring American weakness. We're extraordinarily practical. And, and so in this context, it is simply, you know, we, you know, we see this suffering, we want to stop the suffering, what will stop the suffering? And the easy solution is, well, condoms. The broader solution and the one that is principled is, is, is what the Pope is saying, well, that, that uh, ultimately it doesn't work because it further undermines the sexual morality in the culture that leads to the spread of AIDS in the first place. So... Um, uh, I don't know how you can effectively articulate this to a culture that is really numb to, um, and, and blind to, to these moral principles. It's a very difficult thing. Our Lord says in John chapter 3 that you know, those who do evil you know, avoid the light. They avoid coming to the light because they don't want their works to be seen. There is a blindness that comes over a culture when it is always interested in justifying its sin. And so how do we articulate this in the culture? Say, well, we need to get people to stop thinking about the physical suffering in itself and the broader social and moral uh, dimension of this. What, uh, what is most important here is establishing a sexual morality that will halt the, the spread of AIDS entirely. No, those, okay, so uh, yeah, the, the counter-argument is that, is that we are being heartless by tolerating suffering when a solution is ready at hand. The, the, the first issue is whether or not it's really a solution. And we'll, we'll leave that to the, to, to the you know, the, 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 deeper quest, the deeper issue is regarding physical suffering. It's not the greatest evil. Now, we don't turn a blind eye on, uh, to it, and the Catholic Church has been, more than any other institution, before anybody else was, was dealing with this, the Catholic Church was helping AIDS patients. The first you know, AIDS shelter in D.C. was Missionaries of Charity. So before anybody else was caring for those who suffer, the Catholic Church was. Uh, but this, again, is very difficult to communicate in our culture, that physical suffering is not the worst evil. A moral evil is far worse than physical suffering. How many people are going <laughs> to be ready to, to receive that? But I, I think we, we, need to, we need to hold on to that, and we're going to look ridiculous. 
and this is, um, you know, uh, the martyrs looked ridiculous, and uh, this is why martyrdom is, is, is the, the apex of morality, um, because we, we need to be willing to, uh, to look ridiculous in this regard and, and hold fast to this truth that we don't want to compromise moral truths uh, as a shortcut to alleviating physical suffering. Both Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy uh, use the same phrase, um, tenderness leads to the gas chamber. Tenderness leads to the gas chamber, which is, well, okay, how, can, you know, how, how does that follow? Uh, when we have the wrong kind of compassion, which is not a compassion rooted in truth, but it is just a tenderness, and we seek to alleviate somebody's suffering, uh, not in accord with the truth, but just to alleviate their suffering, that leads to the gas chamber. That leads to euthanasia. That, that, that leads to abortion. Uh, the, the more noble thing is to, uh, to d- devote ourselves to moral truth, first of all, and rooted in that to care for the person's soul. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that Catholic hospitals are probably going to have to be a thing of the past because... Uh, the Catholic Church is the only reasonable response to, um, to physical suffering, which is, of course, union with Christ on the cross. So um, that's 10 minutes, all right, uh, or five minutes twice. So thank you very much. God bless you. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, let's close with a prayer. Sabatino <coughs> reminded me. Um, uh, let's, let's stand close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Taught by our Savior's command, formed by the word of God, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in the peace of Christ.